Blackwater, the Wagner Group, Executive Outcomes, the Flying Tigers, the Swiss Guard, the White Company, the Knights Templar, the Varangian Guard, Clerkus of Sparta, Pythagoras, the Spartan, Mentor of Rhodes, Socrates of Achaea, and on and on. The list is endless. Call them mercenaries, guns for hire, soldiers of fortune, private military companies, private security contractors, or dirty deeds done not so dirt cheap. Whatever. History is replete with privatized militaries. Call them whatever you want. They've been around for a very long time and they are likely not going away anytime soon. So get used to it, accept it, or move to another planet. Because in this world, folks, money trumps everything. And like it or not, wars are good for business. Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of Aconis, The Contractor's Life. Talking from the relatively insulated, bucolic, and rural foothills of Northwestern Washington State, I'm your host, Scott Dresser. Uh, real quick, before launching, uh, for those of you listening who have been around long enough to know better, you know that the only pandemic that matters is the pandemic of the ignorant, the gullible, and the blindly obedient. History tells us that more people are enslaved and killed by such means than any other. For those of you not old enough to remember or know better, remove your blinders, all of them, and take a good sensory inventory of what you're being told to believe. All right, that said, life as a private security contractor outside your own country in a hostile or war-torn zone, it is a mixed bag of blessings. Some good, some not so good. All in all, though, contracting as a private security contractor is much the same as life. It is what you make it. So, that said, let's pick up more or less where we left off in the previous episode. Um, so, you know, people ask, what do you got to do? What do you wear? Where do you live? And I mean, this uh, almost an ever ending slew of, of questions. But to say, but that said, so shortly after arriving and completing the PT test, um, which was done in country and doing the weapons qualifications tests, uh, and a battery of other tests, which took us off base frequently, uh, and intermittently attending classes for our 90 days of instruction and training, um, or so it was supposed to be. Uh, but for a variety of reasons, uh, the class I was in, my class, hit the field approximately two months after arrival. Uh, it was supposed to be three, uh, but <laughs> there's, there's stories to everything, right? Okay. So... Uh, then where did I live? Uh, in a multi, uh, various places. Uh, I think there were three, uh, maybe two, uh, that I actually resided there uh, on my first contract. Uh, the first one was uh, probably the favorite, um, certainly my, an eye-opener. It was, uh, and you've probably, if you've traveled, you, you, you probably have heard of this one, but the Kempinski Group of Hotels and Resorts. Um, and I won't go into detail. You could probably find it on most good mapping programs, but it was, you know, more or less seaside. 
Um, actually, it was, but uh, they're in the Arabian Peninsula or the Gulf now, as people call it. Uh, so that's where I resided first, uh, moved to another place later, probably about halfway through that contract into a high-rise, uh, very nice, uh, almost fancy high-rise hotel apartment complex, uh, more or less downtown in Kuwait City. Um, so there we are. We issued our 511s. Um, that was the brand name of the company of clothing that we were supplied with, mostly in terms of clothing. Um, and accessories of that nature. Uh, we had our last name, security force patch, American flag patch, and stuff like that. Depending on where we worked, uh, we either carried an M16 or an M4 and a Beretta uh, 9mm. Um, again, depending on where we worked and from day to day, we might be manning a also, or in addition to, say, an M60 machine gun, maybe the 240 Bravo, or an M249. Uh, and usually, but not always, within the confines of uh, some sort of a uh, observation tower uh, would be the post for that sort of thing when we were manning those kinds of weapons, generally speaking. So by now, because uh, we're talking the uh, summertime, uh, we're in the latter parts of the month of July and August um coming up on september and as you might expect it's still very warm during the day uh some would call it uh, hot uh indeed uh perhaps even downright hot uh, but that's the way it is in most of the middle east proper there's other regions around there north africa and, and other parts of africa and you know in other parts of what we might call the far east um so And that's in stark contrast to the temperatures that you would have, uh, say, in the wintertime, where, uh, depending on where you were, uh, stuff would freeze. And uh, But this contract, uh, again, my first contract, introduced me to the uh, concept of dry contracts. Because uh, technically, uh, that's what this contract was. It, that was something that, that started... It probably started before 2007, but by then it was certainly a a, uh, a roaring thing. It was it was the new way uh, the contracts were uh, that were contracted to the DoD and even uh, they say DOS. But uh, and I won't go into any great detail on this one, but let's just say that yeah, tactically, strictly speaking, all those contracts are certainly a large part of them were dry contracts, but. You know, people, <laughs> okay, it was everywhere. All you had to do was open your eyes. Um, so while uh, not drinking while in a, a war zone or um, in, in such an area, at first glance, first blush, uh, it makes a lot of sense. But uh, as you might guess, that didn't go over well with uh, most people who drink, um, including uh, believe it or not, a lot of the uh, natives um, or, you know, the politically correct term that they started using, uh, yeah, I guess, right around two, 2007 was host nation, you know. But uh, anyway, so if you, but here's the thing. If you've heard the phrase, if you've got the money, you get whatever you want, then you have a fairly good idea how that might apply even in a war zone. Um, it, it's, it's hard to articulate. You have to be there and experience it. But even in war zones, you would be amazed what you can do and get if you've got 
something that's valuable either for barter, trade, or purchase, however it goes. Uh, so anyway, so I've been in country for, uh, you know, we're back up a little bit for two to three weeks. I'm still adjusting. Um, I'm away from my wife and children, uh, on this one, my first contract for a year at a time. Yeah. I could have taken two weeks off, um, roughly halfway through it, but it's like, what's the point, you know, you know, anyway. Um, so in a foreign country, uh, for the first time, not on the postcard tour standards don't apply that I'm used to. Uh, there's numerous adjustments. Fortunately for me, there are people who've been there and through this before and are at least somewhat sympathetic. So in spite of my best efforts, uh, they can tell, some of them anyway, that I'm stressing. Um, I'm doing a pretty good job of keeping it all contained, but they can tell I'm stressing. Um, so at the residents that were staying there, they see me walking by, motion me over. They're sitting out there on their back decks and in, in what can be described as otherwise lawn chairs after a brief introduction and, and, and discussion. One of them uh, allows me the use of a cell phone to make a phone call uh, home to my wife who was stateside. And as you might expect, she was ecstatic to hear from me and we had kept the conversation going for longer than we had, but I explained to her that it's somebody else's cell phone and it's pretty expensive. At least it was then. Um, remember folks, we're talking about that part of our 21st century where cell phones smartphones anyway not cell phones but smartphones were just starting to come into play and people were just starting to buy them up um it was just starting to take hold so it's not it's nowhere near what it is now they were not ubiquitous not at all um you know and finding what you wanted or needed technologically was not nearly as quick nor as easy as it is now and online maps huh, they were just starting. I mean, we were just starting to get a hold of them and, and learn about them and use them. Uh, certain phones like the one I had, the uh, Nokia, I think was the N95 was the first smartphone I bought and had. Um, it was a really clever operating system. Had a lot of really ingenious built-in software and hardware capabilities, um, which I, I utilized. Uh, but those and, and, and many others were new and... Um, Many others were right behind them, stuff that we take for granted now. Uh, so anyway, so um, at that time, I also knew about Skype. <clears throat> uh, but apparently a lot of guys, uh, particularly those in the military, didn't, uh, which really surprised me. Uh, and where I'm going with that is uh, one day um, I'm uh, on the base. I'm guessing it was a day off, as I recollect. And I'm walking around past this kiosk that pretty much sold everything that you wanted or needed that was cell phone or communications or telecom related. Uh, several military guys were balking at the prices for minutes that they wanted to purchase uh, so they could call their families back home. Yes, back then, um, you pretty much didn't own anything unless you bought the phone outright, but you still had to pay for everything uh, because, you know, cell phone plans were quite a bit more expensive than they were than they are now. Um and uh, SIM cards. Uh, SIM cards are almost ubiquitous anymore. They weren't then. Uh, not every phone, especially a lot of Americans who came over, uh, didn't have, you know, phones where you just popped out the SIM card and put in another. So anyway, so these guys are talking. They're trying to buy it. I announced to them finally because, you know, I'm thinking, what the hell are you guys doing spending that much money? Anyway, I basically told them, just use Skype. And they looked at me, uh, Skype? What's Skype? I explained it to them. And I said, yeah. I said, you can do, you can 
call your wife or your friends or whoever you want as long as they've got it Skype, and it's free. I said, you can talk to them for free. And uh, so the, the local in that kiosk, you could tell he was not very happy about it. Um, he lost um, quite a sale. Um, I don't know about customers, but he certainly lost a big sale that day. Uh, you know, he kept it, he kept it uh, cordial with me. Let's just put it that way. <laughs> yeah. uh, friends, yeah. Uh, you know, that term gets talked about a lot, gets tossed about a lot. And, uh, you know, loosely we call everybody friends. But, uh, and, and I've got, like probably all of you, we've all got friends. But I'd say the first person that I made friends with over there was a fellow who went by my same name. Um, and he was, uh, he was let go. He was there probably two or three months. I don't recall the exact incident, um, that, that, it, but it had something to do with, uh, something he had signed along with his initials. Um, some do-gooder supervisor made a big deal about it because his initials were SS, and he showed this document to me, and he's likening it to the S, the Waffen SS that you would see on the lapel pins. And I'm like, whatever. I'm like, come on, man. Whatever. Who cares? Well, anyway, he made a big deal about it. Uh, so this dude that went by my same name, Scott, uh, he was gone within two to three months. Um, so... You know, uh, it's, it was kind of it was kind of heartbreaking to see a, an otherwise good dude done in by somebody whose feelings were offended or hurt. Uh, so then I met this gal and we're working. Her name, uh, I'll call her Mary. That might have actually been her real name. I don't remember, but I'll call her Mary. Um, she was a likable enough gal, and like so many uh, during my years over there, she tried to convince me that she was something much more and better or harder than she actually was. Uh, but mostly, though, I knew her as someone who delighted in talking ceaselessly and almost incessantly about herself. So one day, uh, on a drive off base to a half, what I'll call a halfway checkpoint between uh, uh, then, and I think it's still there, Camp Erfjan, and a fairly large ASP or an ammunition supply point, after talking ceaselessly to me for, it seemed like hours, it probably was only minutes, <laughs> uh, she accused me of talking too much. And I was nearly nodded off uh, between the heat and her endless blather. And I remember commenting, I'm talking too much? She replied, yeah, uh, and made some other comments. And, uh, be, you know, between that comment and a comment, towards me at the checkpoint when I was the only one actually doing the job we were hired to do while she and the others were enjoying the air conditioning inside one, the, the building out there, small shack, you know, big shack, small shack, whatever, doing whatever they were doing on their laptops. Yeah, in 2007, people were taking their laptops with them to work and instead of working, doing whatever the hell they were doing on their laptops. I mean, I was beyond incredulous. So let's just say that our friendship had reached its limit, uh, not only with her, with a few others, but certainly with her, uh, because they were basically covering for each other. Um, so after 
that was one of several incidents out there at this particular location. And it might have been on that same day when two of our bosses came out, one lower management and the other upper management. And I did a good job of stalling and covering for the people inside that shack so that they could do whatever they needed to do in case these guys got out and walked in um, so that they didn't get caught with their pants down, so to speak. But it was pretty clear to me, uh, fairly quick on in that conversation, that they, they understood implicitly what I was doing. But... I was very professional about it. They commented about it, and they were pleased and surprised, um, at least surprised, that I was the only one outside. <laughs> I was the only person outside in that midday heat, uh, probably 130, 135 that day. Um, but that, you know, that that that's me. That's just where, you know, doesn't matter. If, if I'm going to work for you, I'm going to do the job, and I'm going to do it right. Uh I just was not one of those guys. Don't trust me. I, I enjoyed getting some relief from the hot, from the heat in an air-conditioned facility. But that, I would much rather be outside. Um, even if I was outside by myself, I'd much rather be outside in that environment than inside, um, blithely unaware of anything and everything going on around me. Uh, that's just uh, carelessness at at its best. So... And at that time, then, you know, and I'm realizing, and, and a little while later, I don't know, weeks or months later, um, I come to realize that most, many to most of the people I was working with were just downright full of shit, okay? And by that, I mean, most of what they said either didn't make sense or was just a, an outright lie, uh, but a lot of them were just high on themselves. It seemed that everyone uh, was applying for a position somewhere else with another company and the guys it was always this high speed stuff they wanted to do um but you know whatever um i really took to the indians that were working there and i don't mean uh native american indians i'm talking about the country india the indian people from india uh most not all of course but most of them seem to be pretty down to earth <clears throat> and pretty good people Working in an environment where most of the people around them did not like them and did not want them around certainly didn't take them seriously. Uh, but that, you know, for whatever reasons, that's just the way it was. Um, but I found them to be refreshingly invigorating. Uh, they were just, um, I'm not sure on after all is the right word, but they were just, they were themselves. They, you know, there probably were some of them out there trying to put on the Ritz in their own way. But for the most part, they were just down to earth good people. Uh, they did their level. They they did, um, and at some point it seemed like they were all trying. Uh, but they did their level best to teach me uh, Hindi. And surprisingly, if, um, if you can speak Hindi, then much of it translates to Arabic. And I was really surprised uh, because they would have conversations with with people there in Kuwait, and it's like, how the hell do you guys know what's what you're saying to each other. Uh, but if you listen closely, a lot of it sounds very much the same. So they taught me the basics I needed in terms of language skills to communicate with the big truck drivers <coughs> uh, who we frequently were searching and occasionally had to detain before turning them over to uh, military intelligence types. So, you know, I mean, what's it like working over there with uh, people from another culture or another country? Uh, not much different, really, than working with people from your own city or your own state or your own country. Um, I mean, because people are people. That's what I've discovered. And to this day, I still maintain that. People are people. Uh, 
when they smile, you know they're smiling. When they're frowning, you know they're frowning. Uh, when they're upset, you know they're upset. When they're happy, you know they're happy. I'm just, there's just an awful lot of things that seem to be the same in people, regardless of where they hail from. But anyway, so, uh, you know, people have asked what, you know, what are some of the other things that I recall over there? Um, and, you know, and, and did I get along with, with them? Yeah, I did. And, and I had some good times and, and uh, some good learning experiences with these people. So uh, the first, as I recall, was uh, a training session for signs and indicators of IEDs, particularly in vehicles. Um, and I was obsessed, uh, perhaps overly so, to a sensory overload factor of about, of about 1,000 uh, when it came to detecting visually and other, otherwise uh, IEDs when searching vehicles and persons. Uh, so one day, uh, and we're still in the summer, I'm, I'm thinking it's probably August, might even be September, um, but I'm doing a search with, with my Indian compatriots, and by that time, most people hated me and, and admired me, uh, probably for the same reasons, for my dedication to craft. But that said, one of the Americans on my team asked me to search under the hood again. Uh, we had just closed this thing up, and, and we're getting ready to uh, go on to the next one. But unbeknownst to me, so we, we did, we popped it. Unbeknownst to me, while I had been engaged in an after-search discussion with others, this dude that asked us to pop the hood again, I think it was a training instructor, but he had placed a small IED training device atop the manifold of the engine where we had finished searching. And within seconds of him popping the hood, I noticed the red device and the red wires. I called it out and said something to the effect of, what the F, uh, and where did that come from? And I still remember the look uh, he gave me and the words he spoke. And it was something like, that's what I'm trying to tell you, Scott. If there's an IED, you'll see it. In other words, dude, speed it up. <laughs> uh, and I did. I mean, there were times where I took my sweet time. But for the most part, I did speed it up. You know, lesson learned. Uh, so my second was another training session. And in this one, within minutes of beginning the search, after raising the uh, second row seat, uh, and it was uh, one of those crossover SUVs as we've come to know it, a training hand grenade rolled forward, um, falling just inches short, and it's on the floor of the vehicle, but falling and falling just inches short of the right front passenger seat. Uh, briefly and very briefly, <laughs> we were all kind of startled, and it's like, ah, crap, we're dead. <laughs> you know, um, fortunately, it was just a training exercise. We finished that. Um, having found all the IEDs placed on the vehicle, uh, and yes, momentarily, we we were all proud. But it, it was a good reminder uh, that things can happen that quickly. Uh, no matter how thorough you are, no matter how seriously you take your job, it could end just that quickly. And so that was one of the credos, which was, by the time you see it, it's too late. Okay, <laughs> so maybe more on that later. But the third one, so uh, as I recollect, was a fuel depot. Uh, I think we called it, I, you know, like a, the bladder farm or something like that. But just these huge, massive, I'm not sure what the material was, but it looked like some super elastic plastic rubber 
thing. But and they were and they were I mean they were just super huge, massive, and they were more or less buried in the ground. Um so it's this fuel depot. We're uh pushing all the trucks. We've we've uh designated quarantine areas while we search. I spotted what seemed to be a genuine IED threat in one of these trucks in the cab. And uh I mean the hairs of my body stood up. I was like, oh shit. Really? This is my day again? Uh <laughs> so all the signs and indicators were there. As subtle as some of them were, they were there. And it was like, and, and the wires were running from underneath cardboard boxes, setting on the floor behind the the, the passenger and driver's seat of the semi truck. Uh, the wires ran beneath the seats, under the carpet, finally protruding. Uh, they they went through the far wall and protruded finally, um, as I recall, around the. Uh, uh, the, the, the throttle body and, and areas like that. I'm just like, oh, shit. Uh, and, th- and this was uh, this was after I had gone to my supervisor and alerted him to what I thought I found. And and he was like, well, you got to go back there and you got to check it out. We need to know for sure. You know, I'm not going to call in EOD if there's nothing there. I don't want that. Um <laughs> Yeah, well, anyway, so I, I did go back. I, but I remember thinking, man, are you effing crazy? <laughs> you know, I'm not, you know, I'm not a glutton for punishment. And I don't necessarily have a death wish. But anyway, long story short, I went back there. And that's what I, that's when I, that's when I traced all this stuff and tracked it. And fortunately, it turned out, it turned out to be nothing more than wires from the battery to the speaker's. Um, and that was the other thing, because I thought the whole thing was a big ruse, because the wires also went to speakers. And, you know, but so anyway, that's what it really was. And, and these boxes, these cardboard boxes were covering up what turned out to be legitimate speakers. It was a legit thing. It just this is the this is what that truck driver did so that he could listen to music while he was driving. <laughs> yeah. So that was that one. Um. So. There were plenty of other experiences, to be sure. Uh, but those three that I highlighted and the ones in the previous episode were probably, you know, more or less the largest. There were, for the most part, it was it was a lot of it was mundane, uh, just daily, you know, grudgery, drudgery, not grudgery, drudgery. Um, you know, whirling around out in the hot sun and one thing or another or in the, in the freezing temperatures at night in the wintertime. So, you know, what's it like to be a private security contractor overseas? Well, I suppose the first thing is it can be humbling and it's a learning experience to be sure. So whatever it is you go over there with that you think you know or that you think you've learned, uh, I'm not saying uh, dispatch it or lose it or get rid of it, but some, maybe a lot of it, you got to kind of set aside and... Uh, you, you know, you, you'll package it all together eventually and make one nice, neat, complex package out of all of it. But you're listening and observing. Those are the key things. They say that your most potent weapon is between your ears. So listen and and look. Look and listen. Okay. So the people that are sergeants and staff sergeants, just like in the movies, this is one of the things that Hollywood gets right. Okay. They are sergeants and staff sergeants or gunnery sergeants or sergeant first class or tech sergeants or, you know, chiefs, master chiefs, whatever. They get there for a reason. Sometimes it's by the grace of God. And some of these people are willing to acknowledge that. 
You know, they have, you know, by all rights, they should have been dead. By all rights, I should have been dead many times over in my life, um, certainly um, in a wheelchair. But so that's what it, it's learning. It's being humble. It's listening to the experience, the voice of experience, the people on the ground that have the listen to the voice of experience. That's what it is. Okay. Until you have reached that point, you and even then you still need to listen because there's always there's always somebody has something to say or something to show that you haven't learned or you didn't know. And I remember one guy, and this will wrap this one up, but for the most part, and and this is fast forwarding many years, but it was in Afghanistan. And this guy was, he was an otherwise all right guy. We never, we kind of got along, but we didn't. It didn't take me long to realize I hated the dude. He was a constant pain in my ass. But one day he looked at me and he said, he, he was going on about something and then he could just tell my eyes were starting to roll. And he was like, I guess I really, because he, he was like, and he said something like, well, I guess I'm only 25 and you're 50, whatever I was at that time. He goes, I guess I really can't teach you much, can I? Or teach you anything. And I wasn't sure how to respond. I mean, you, as you might imagine, a lot of stuff went through my mind. But by this point, I pretty much hated the dude. And I looked at him. I said, yeah, you're right. There's not jack shit you can teach me. So shut the F up. Okay. Uh, and that, that, you know, maybe I shouldn't have said it in hindsight. I don't know. But I was just damn tired of this noob who, had, who was there who shouldn't have been there. And I'll go into that much later or maybe later. Uh, but he, he stereotyped. Uh, so many people that were there that shouldn't have been there, whether it was Iraq or Afghanistan and arguably even in Kuwait. It just depended. So by this, I, I'm talking about life in general, not necessarily experience on the ground, um, although there was some of that uh, as well. But, uh, you know, because life experience takes into account a lot of things. But just, you know, it, it's kind of like be humble until you know your job. Be humble. Even then, be humble. Okay. Uh, even as a supervisor or a manager when I was over there, um, I, I lost my temper a few times, but for the most part, it was like, take a deep breath and just relax because we've all been there. These guys um, are looking up to me. They're looking for me for the correct answers, the correct instruction, the, the proper training. Um, and I'm not so... And you talk about people with a wealth of knowledge from different walks of life, different experiences, different countries, um, these guys got things to offer. It doesn't matter if they were from Africa or the Middle East or the Philippines or South America or many of the other countries they came from in Europe. Okay, almost everybody had something to offer. And I, and I got to a point where one of the refrains that I would frequently find myself remarking to people was, you can learn something from anyone and you can learn something from everyone, even if it's what not to say and what not to do, and when not to say it, and when not to do it. So, thank you, everyone, for taking time out of your day or evening to listen to me talk about my experiences as a private security contractor overseas. Thank you again to Cava Cohen and Colin Perry. Thank you to my wife, my children, and all the folks, male and female, young and old, who have been and or are still a part of my life. Remember that the grass is not always greener on the other side. Be careful what you wish for. You might just get it.
Stay humble. Stay safe by staying frosty. Until next time, keep it real. Yeah.